Uh, let's ask God to help us now with his word. Uh, God, our Father, we pray in your mercy now that you would help us to understand a little what a great gift you have given us uh, in giving the Spirit to the Lord Jesus to pour out upon his people. More than that, we pray we would know the Spirit's work more and more in our lives. Know it this morning in giving us understanding of your word and conviction of its truth. And know it every day, turning our hearts to you, to live for you. Help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly. And help us all to understand and receive with faith. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, we pause our normal preaching program today, the day of Pentecost, to remember the first Christian Pentecost, the day when in fulfilment of prophecy, the Lord Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God on his people. Uh, like Easter, Pentecost's place in the calendar is known exactly, getting its name from the Greek for 50th, because it occurs 50 days after the Passover, seven weeks after Easter Sunday. And like Christmas and Easter, Pentecost has a place in our church calendar because it remembers an event of great significance, an event that is fundamental to our understanding of the greatness of the Lord Jesus. You won't get the Lord Jesus right unless you get Pentecost right. And Pentecost is also fundamental to our understanding of the context and privilege of the life of believers in Jesus now and fundamental to our understanding of the centrality of the gospel going to all nations in God's plans. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. What Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit, tells us about the Lord Jesus, what it tells us about Christians, what it tells us about gospel mission. So that we're reminded of Jesus' greatness and come to trust him as he deserves and are renewed in thankfulness for the sure and wonderful new life of the Spirit, which the Spirit brings. And so that we're also encouraged to give ourselves as followers of Jesus to the Spirit's work in us and to the Spirit's mission in bringing the gospel to the nations. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which he said, you have heard me speak about. For John baptised with water, but you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit in a few days. The Lord Jesus identifies the anticipated coming of the Spirit on his followers as their being baptised with the Spirit, language taken from the prophecy of John the Baptist. So if we want to understand the significance of that first Pentecost, John's prophecy is a good place to start. All the Gospels start with the ministry of John the Baptist and all the Gospels record him as saying that there was one coming after him who will baptise with the Spirit. Listen to John in Luke responding to the crowds. John answered them all, I baptise you with water but one who is more powerful than I am is coming. I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
His winnowing shovel is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. John knew himself to be a herald, one declaring in advance the coming of another incomparably greater than himself to help them prepare for that coming, for it would be a time of division and eternal separation. And the measure of the greatness of the one to come is that he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now what's John talking about? And why did he expect his hearers to understand it? John is saying that the one to come will bring the end time salvation and judgment of God, drawing on prophecies of the Old Testament and using the language of baptism to contrast what this coming one will do with what John does. You see, in the Old Testament, God had promised a time when he would bring his purified people to live at peace with him in his presence, enjoying great fruitfulness and security in a renewed land, a new heaven and earth. And at that time, God said he would also remove the wicked from amongst them by a day that would, in Malachi's words, burn like a furnace. And you can read of that in Malachi 4, the same chapter that speaks of another Elijah, being sent to prepare people for that day. And at that time, God would also save and purify his people, make them people who could live at peace with him. And the mark of that renewed people, the people who are prepared for that day and so would be spared the judgment of the day of the Lord, is that they will have the spirit of God. Have you heard of that in the apostles' quotation of the prophet Joel. Joel chapter 2, After this I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream, have dreams, and your young men will see visions. I will even pour out my spirit on the male and female slaves in those days. I will display wonders in the heavens above and on the earth beneath, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Joel speaks of the coming of the Spirit. It's also spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, verse 3. I will pour water on thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my Spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. In fact, as we see in Ezekiel, it's only with the coming of the Spirit that God can have a people who are truly his, whose hearts will delight in doing the Lord's will and through whom God's name, his revelation of himself, would be honoured in the world amongst the nations. Ezekiel 36. I will honour the holiness of my great name, says God, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. The nations will know that I am the Lord. This is the declaration of the Lord God when I demonstrate my holiness through you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and will bring you into your own land. I will also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. 
I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. John the Baptist is saying that the one to come will bring this spirit and pour it out on a repentant people. The one to come will create the saved people of God. And John uses the language of baptism to help them see this one's greatness by contrasting it with what he does. John was known for baptising with water. It was characteristic of his ministry. But John's baptism was something done on the outside, preparatory, a sign of repentance. But the one to come, well, he will do something on the inside. He will give the substance, not the sign, a new heart that will do God's will. He will create the saved people of God who will dwell securely in God's kingdom in reality, not in anticipation. That is an incomparably greater work because the one to come is incomparably greater. He is the Lord coming and saving his people as as he promised. Now, for those first hearers, John's prophecy was something to be excited about. But here's the thing. Although every gospel starts with this prophecy of John, Although the Lord Jesus comes and conducts his ministry in the power of the Spirit, and the references are in the transcript, although he speaks often of the Spirit and of the necessity of new birth by the Spirit, and although the Lord Jesus promises the Spirit to those who believe in him, for example, as he said in John 7, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. And the Apostle John comments, he said this about the Spirit, that those who believed in Jesus were going to receive. For the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So although the Spirit was promised, spoken about, at the end of the Gospels, The Spirit had not come on those who believed the Lord Jesus. The end of the Gospels, this prophecy of John is not yet fulfilled. Even in John's Gospel, which speaks of Jesus breathing on the disciples and saying, receive the Holy Spirit as he commissions them to be his messengers. Even in John's Gospel, (coughs) the coming of the Spirit, which the Lord said was dependent on his going to the Father, has not happened. So Jesus has died. Jesus has risen. But the Spirit has not yet come upon Jesus' followers. The renewed, saved people of God has not yet been brought into existence. So there's unfinished business. And until John's prophecy is fulfilled, there is, in a sense, uncertainty about the impact of Jesus' death and rising and its place in God's saving plan of what those events, particularly the resurrection, meant for others. You see, for the Jewish people, the resurrection was something that belonged to the end, 
that Jesus in his resurrection, in a sense, had brought the end into the present. But was it only Jesus whose relation to the end times had changed? Or did his resurrection have meaning for all? There's unfinished business, uncertainty. But then, as the Lord Jesus said it would, 50 days after the death of the Passover lamb, the spirit comes, discernibly, powerfully, overwhelmingly on Jesus' followers. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, immediately, the apostles know what this means, as their quote of Joel shows. They know the coming of the Spirit means that the crucified Jesus, risen from the dead, is the one John spoke of, the infinitely greater one promised by God the end-time deliverer of God's people and judge of the world, the one who is both the giver of the new life of the Spirit, the life of the age to come, when God's gathered people will live in his presence forever, and the one who will pronounce final judgment on those who do not repent, who will exclude them from God's presence forever. And the apostles know that because of his death for sin and resurrection and glorification as God's king, Jesus is the only one who can give that new life and new heart of the spirit. And the apostles make that clear to the crowd that gathers, drawn by hearing God's praise in their own tongues. And you can read Peter's speech fully in Acts chapter 2, but Peter, the apostle's spokesman, starts by reminding the crowd that Jesus had ministered amongst them, showing in his ministry that he was sent by God and that they, the crowd, had shared in killing him. But then he declares that God has raised Jesus from the dead in fulfilment of the scripture about the Messiah, the Christ, the son of David, and they are witnesses to that fact. And Peter tells his listeners that as the Christ, the exalted King and Saviour of God's people, the crucified Jesus has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, not for himself, but for his people. God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this, says Peter. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. You see, the coming of the Spirit confirms beyond doubt what the resurrection taught, that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Jesus is, as Paul says in his summary of the gospel at the beginning of Romans, declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. But the apostles are not content with saying just what this outpouring of the Spirit means for Jesus. They tell the crowds what it means for them, that as the living Lord, the Lord Jesus will continue to give this new life to all who believe in him 
to the end of the age. He will continue to save all who call on him until the great day of God comes. In response to their hearers' anguished question, what should we do? Peter replies, repent and be baptised each of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is to you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. So let's pause and think. How do you think of Jesus? A figure active in the past only? A teacher of ancient wisdom? A prophet, maybe? Or someone now confined to the pages of a book you may read rarely or often? Or do you think of him as the active, living saviour? Saving now through forgiving and giving the spirit to all who call on him. The one who is still gathering his people and building his church. For that is what the coming of the spirit at Pentecost says Jesus is. The active living saviour, saving now through forgiving and giving the spirit to all who call on him. The one who is still gathering his people and building his church. You see, becoming a follower of Jesus today is not just a matter of coming to private intellectual conviction, changing your mind about someone who's dead or absent, adopting a worldview perhaps whose truth you are persuaded of. It's actually not something you talk yourself into. Now, of course, you need to be persuaded of the truth of the gospel But genuine persuasion will move you to act by calling upon a real and living saviour. You see, to be a Christian, there must be personal dealings with the living Lord Jesus, personal acknowledgement of his present rule over your life, personal dependent trust, for it is the living Lord Jesus who comes to us in his promises in the gospel. It is the living Lord Jesus who gives us his spirit, who baptises every believer, everyone who calls on him with his spirit and so joins them to himself and who in giving his spirit bears witness time after time in history in the lives of his people that he lives and he is Lord. If you're not yet a believer, let's say here, you're asking questions about Jesus, about the Christian faith, that's great and we hope you'll come and read a gospel with us or do Christianity Explored. But know this, there will come a time when to know the truth of Jesus, you have to move from asking others about Jesus to asking him, Jesus to calling on him. Only then will you know the new life he gives, the forgiveness he grants, his faithfulness and love. Only then will you know those things for yourself. And the living Jesus wants you to call on him. And he will hear you if you call on him in truth, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
The giving of the Spirit at Pentecost is fundamental, isn't it, to our understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do. But what does receiving the Spirit as the gift of the crucified and risen Lord Jesus, given to every believer in Jesus, mean for believers? What changes? Well, the answer is everything. For this is new birth to a new life. But let me highlight some things from the letters of the Apostle. So firstly, doubt and anxiety about our relationship with God, about where we'll stand in the judgment, about whether God knows and cares for us, is replaced by a God-given confidence of relationship with the living God. You see, the Spirit's takes our reconciliation through Christ's blood and makes it an experienced reality, not just a doctrine. The Spirit assures us through repentance and faith in Jesus we are adopted as God's children. You didn't receive a spirit of slavery, writes Paul, to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Oh, because you're sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Something we would never dare to believe or claim for ourselves. God, through his Spirit, tells us he has done, assures us he has done. He has made us, he has adopted us as his Children. So believers in Jesus don't live in the world abandoned, orphaned, homeless, in an infinite emptiness. For the Spirit cries with our spirit, Abba, Father, we belong to the living God. And the Spirit assures us of the love we know in believing the gospel, the love of God that gave his Son for us while we were still sinners. Romans 5 Hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given us. Now, what a great gift. We live in a world where love is conditional on performance, on beauty, on ability. So often we can feel ourselves as unlovely and unloved. And we live in a world where the best of human loves will end. And we will lose it in death. But the Spirit assures us that we are loved with an abundant, overflowing love by God. A love which is not something we have talked ourselves into, that's not dependent on our circumstances, good or bad. Not something that's dependent on our deceiving ourselves about our own deserving. But the love of God for us while we were in the ugliness and ingratitude of our sin, our rebellion against the living God, a love that will continue into eternity. Now we could stop there, couldn't we? There's enough to think about there. The Spirit flooding our hearts with God's love in assuring us Christ has died for us. But there's lots more that the Spirit does. So you kind of could look at this talk as a kind of sampling tour of all the riches that we have been given in being given the Spirit. Because, as I say, there's lots more, but the point about a sample is that you get a taste and you go back. 
Go back and think about, meditate on these things. But there is more. You see, it's by the Spirit we know the truth that the Lord Jesus is with us as he promised to be. Matthew 28, I am with you always to the end of the ages. In John, our Lord Jesus also assured his followers, those who keep his word, that he would be present with us. If anyone loves me, says our Lord, he will keep my word. My Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. How? Well, the Apostle John tells us in his letter, 1 John 3, the one who keeps his commands remains in him and he in him. And the way we know that he remains in us is from the spirit he has given us. This is how we know that we remain in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. It's through his spirit that the Lord Jesus remains in us, with us. So we know by the Spirit, that our Lord's never ignorant of our circumstances, unaware of our trials. Believers, through the Spirit he has given, are never forgotten, never abandoned, never alone. He is with us. Think of that. In a hostile workplace, starting a new school, in a hospital ward at night, lying on that trolley in the operating theatre when all you know have been excluded coming back to an empty house that was once full of living companionship. Believers in Jesus are not alone. We remain in him and he in us by his spirit. And more, that's a presence that gives direction and meaning to everyday life. Don't you know, writes the apostle, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Each day the presence of the Spirit prompts us to live, to glorify our God. And the Spirit, as we seek to live for the Lord, out of gratitude for his love and grace, not to earn it, Well, the Spirit gives us, in place of grief and frustration at our failure or slowness to change, hope and confidence that we will be able to change, change to live as we are, God's children, growing to be more like our Lord every day. You see, becoming a Christian is not embarking on a self-help program of moral improvement. It is giving yourself to the gracious work of God by his spirit. The mindset of the spirit is life and peace. So we're not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh because if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It is by the spirit and only by the spirit that we can put to death what's called the flesh, that mindset that always wants to put self first, that corrupts even God's good law to live in disobedience to God. And the spirit will work change, a new character like our Lord's in us. The fruit of the spirit, writes Paul, is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit.
the Spirit will bear this fruit in the lives of Jesus' followers. But we are not passive in this. We're to keep in step with the Spirit, keep walking to the Spirit's drumbeat, to give ourselves to the Spirit's direction, and we will want to because of the new heart the Spirit gives. But that hope for growth and change is not in ourselves. It's not dependent on our own strength but the Spirit's life in us. So it is always a good hope, no matter how mired you feel in bad habits. And the Spirit does still more. By the Spirit, our fear of death is replaced by God-given confidence about our future. Our Tim Keller, as you know, as Clinton mentioned last week, died May the 19th. Listen to the way Tim spoke of his imminent death. Not because he's a saint, but because he's a believer. This is from the obituary written by Tony Carnes, who was interviewed by Dominic Steele on The Pastor's Heart, and he's quoting a message from Tim's son, Michael. Two nights before he died, Michael wrote, Tim prayed with his family. I'm thankful for all the people who prayed for me over the years. I'm thankful for my family that loves me. I'm thankful for the time God has given me. But I'm ready to see Jesus. I can't wait to see Jesus send me home. Then when he was alone with Kathy, his wife, he said, there is no downside for me in leaving, not the slightest. In the last conversation, it's time I need to go to Jesus, to die with confidence. That is one of the gifts the Lord Jesus gives his people through his spirit. You see, Paul speaks of the spirit in Ephesians 1 as the down payment of our inheritance. Verse 14, the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. That is, the Spirit is that part of all that God has promised his people, promised them about the end. It's that part that guarantees to us that he will do for us all that he has promised. It's the down payment assuring us the full payment will be made. Oh, and the Apostle Paul, uh, oh, where am I with this? Once again, lost. Ah, good. Okay. The Apostle Paul speaks of the Spirit, Romans 8, as first fruits, the first part of the harvest that tells us the rest is certain. Not only that, verse 23, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as first fruits, we also groan inwardly, groan uh, within, uh, within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. See, first fruits is an image that tells us that the Spirit is the first part of the complete harvest of the end time, all that God has promised, that makes the rest of that harvest is certain. It's the first part of all that God has promised his people at the end, for it is the life of the age to come that guarantees for us, makes certain our resurrection to the new heaven 
and earth. You see, our confident hope when dying is not based on the strength of our faith, but on the might and faithfulness of our Saviour. And he, knowing our frailty, has assured us of his power and our future by giving us now, in the present, his spirit, the life of that age to come. This assurance of being loved, of being able to approach the living almighty God as our Father who loves us, of hope of change even in our failure, of going to be with Jesus, of being raised from the dead, of Christ being with us, never alone, is not self-sustained, something we talk ourselves into. It's not a self-improvement project that we tire of, not just a mental conviction. These things are gifts of the Spirit's presence in our lives, fruit of the Spirit's presence. And so something we know, can know and rely on, even as our own strength fades, or we are conscious of overwhelming difficulty. For the life of God never fails. It is, as our Lord said in John 4, like a spring of water welling up in us, ever renewed. God is at work in believers in Jesus by his Spirit. He has committed himself to us. He has come to abide in us all by his grace, the grace we receive in our Lord Jesus. And God's at work for God is determined that he will glorify himself by having a people of his own. And Pentecost reminds us of that, reminds us that the growth of the church and the spread of the gospel is God's project He's doing that what directs and sustains the growth of the church is not sociological or cultural factors, not any human factor, but God through his spirit. At the beginning of the Acts of the Acts, the apostles are wondering about the end. Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? And Jesus puts them and us in our place. He says, Not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. The Father's got that under control. He's got it all sorted. What they and we, says our Lord Jesus, need to focus on is not speculation about the end, but being witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And the Lord promises the Spirit will empower them for that task And actually, that's what we see happening immediately in Acts chapter 2. On that first Pentecost, in that reading we have from Acts 2, we see two things, both of which tell us about gospel mission. Firstly, as you heard, people from all sorts of places, here the first believers, (coughs) those followers, those first followers, declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. You see, the first act of the Spirit is to assure us that the gospel is for all in the language of their own heart. The gospel's not given to support linguistic imperialism or cultural superiority, but to undo Babel, not by the imposition of one language on all, 
but through uniting all in the worship of the one true God in their own languages through the Spirit, a spiritual unity that preserves difference. God is the God of all and not just of those who can learn to speak the language of the apostles. God will bring the gospel to people where they are culturally and linguistically. That is not a problem for him and he wants Jesus exalted as the saviour of the world. And secondly, uh, we see in Acts 2 that central to the spirit in power, witness to the Lord Jesus, central to making disciples of all nations will be the preaching of the witness of the apostles. The coming of the Spirit is both seen and explained in the preaching of Peter. And it's by convicting the hearers of the truth of this witness, moving their dead hearts by the word of Christ's death and resurrection, that the Spirit adds to the number of Jesus' disciples. Preaching the gospel will always be the mark of the Spirit's work in growing Christ's church. You see, gospel mission is not a human project. It is God's project. The expression, as I've said, of his determination that his servant Jesus be a light to the nations, the saviour of the world, and that he have a people of his own from every nation and language. And that means two things for us. Firstly, we should not believe or be shaken by the secularists proclaiming the inevitable demise of the church, that believers in Christ will shrink away into nothing in our society, overwhelmed by the tsunami of the enlightenment and religious pluralism. No. However things may appear, Christ will build his church And he'll do it with a power, not a human power, the power of his spirit that secularists neither understand nor can counter. And secondly, we should look to Christ to build his church his way. Not by manipulation, not by legislation, no, by the spirit-empowered preaching of the gospel, spirit-sustained and spirit-directed. And we should give ourselves to that by making the gospel of the apostles clear. That God has raised the crucified Jesus from the dead and made him Lord and Christ, the one with authority to judge and forgive. Pentecost, the Lord Jesus pouring out his spirit on that small band in the upper room and empowering their making disciples through the spirit. The beginning of a movement that has spread across the globe by the preaching of the word is a great encouragement to keep making Jesus known and to pray for the continuing work of the Spirit who is no less powerful now as he was then, the continuing work of the Spirit in our lives to make us faithful witnesses to the gospel of Jesus ourselves. Now, we have celebrations and holidays at Easter and Christmas that give us time to reflect on the meaning of the Son of God becoming one of us and of his death and rising. 
but Pentecost, the pouring out of the Spirit by the ascended, glorified Lord Jesus on his people, the beginning of his church, is no less important. So give yourself time, make time to meditate on what occurred in Jerusalem that day to that small band of Jesus' followers. Do that so that you will think big thoughts, right thoughts about Jesus, whose death is so effective in dealing with sin that we can be cleansed, made fit to receive the Holy Spirit of God. Jesus, who is so great, the Son, that he can give the Spirit of the Holy God. Make yourself time to think big thoughts about Jesus and make time to meditate on Pentecost so that you'll be enriched with thankfulness for the wonderful gift of God's Spirit to all who believe in the Lord Jesus, the gift that assures us, transforms us, comforts us with the presence of God, gives us sure hope. And make time to meditate so that you'll be encouraged to keep giving yourself to the Spirit's work in your life, that wonderful work that nurtures the family likeness of Christ-like character in us and that gives us understanding and conviction of the gospel word. And yes, meditate. So you'll be encouraged to keep sharing in the Spirit's mission to make the gospel of Christ known here amongst us and throughout the world. For the Lord Jesus is exalted, the only saviour of the world, the only one who can give that new life through new birth, the new life that will continue forever into the new heaven and earth. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that each of us here who trusts the Lord Jesus would know for ourselves that wonderful work of your spirit in our lives, calling out to you, Abba Father, assuring us of your love, assuring us of our Lord Jesus' presence with us, transforming us and giving us a sure hope, that longing for resurrection life. In your mercy, may each of us know more and more that work in us. And Father, we pray that your spirit would so work in us that we also would testify that Jesus is exalted, the one who can forgive and judge, who can give your spirit to all who call on him. And Father, we pray for those here who do not yet know Jesus. We pray that they would come to know him as the living Lord, not just an idea, not just a figure in history, but the one who lives now and who can save them now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.